From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. And Zach, how was your flight home from Charleston, man? You know, it was nice. Uh, a little longer than the flight there, unfortunately. That's kind of the, the challenge when you fly east to west. But, uh, you know, low-key, uh, got out on time, got in on time, got home on time. It's always nice. Got to have a drink at home before I went to bed. It's always a, it's always a nice uh a nice thing after a long flight. So, how about you? You had a you had a less of a of a travel, but uh, I think you had to actually do work when you got home. Oh yeah, I had to go straight to a dinner meeting, which was super annoying. But you know, it was nice because the airport was. I didn't listen to anyone's advice, and I did what I would do as a New Yorker, and I got there two hours early. And as you now know from the Charleston airport, I went through security in five minutes, and there was nothing to do in the airport. <laughs> so it was super boring. It's very um, but Charleston was a great time, man. It was a, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, you know, we uh, hopefully all of you listened to our podcast that uh, we did live with uh, at the Charleston Wine and Food Festival headquarters. Um, and you know, when I was editing the piece or editing the podcast, you know, we, we took out a couple of of the uh, questions from the listeners because they were just a little little choppy as as the audio came out. But I was going to say, did you have did you have a, a particular drinking experience that you felt uh, something that we had on that trip that you felt like, man, this was awesome? Hmm. Honestly, I really liked that uh, that wine that you had suggested um, at the at the restaurant by the producer who was actually from Seattle. But oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Making, well, from Portland, but close, close from Portland and making wine in the Loire, right? Yeah. Shout out and, to well, who Brendan was that producer Stater- again, and what was the wine? Uh, uh, Brendan Stater West is the producer. Uh, he's based in uh, Samur, uh, and it was uh, I forget what he, what it's called. Um, our guest is probably like over there, like you know under her breath cursing me because i can't remember the specifics I'm, I'm sure she's familiar with it but uh but yeah brendan's a great dude i, I got to meet him when i was out uh in the loire a couple years ago and uh he's a really interesting guy who went from being like an english teacher in paris who like he'd gone there because he loved france and then he got interested in wine because he was in france and now he's like a super talented winemaker in france which is kind of a wild thing um and, and a cool story and, and it also makes really good wine yeah, it was cool. It was a really nice wine. So thank you for sharing that with us. My pleasure. I, I want to shout out our uh, our our guest Kelly Holmes and and our uh, and our evening. Um, I really enjoyed. We went to a wine bar uh, called uh, Skins and Stems that uh, in North Charleston, and that was a lot of fun. And and a really cool thing. You know, we we talked a little bit about it when we were there. But um, one of the things that I love about what's happening in wine around the country is that. You know, so many great wine bars exist and, you know, we had a conversation and I think we might actually get into it with our guest a little bit about this, but, you know, there's a way in which the wine bar in our circles has become almost a little bit of a, I don't know whether it's a cliche or something that we kind of are like, you know, they're good, but they can also be really, really bad. And it reminds, and going to, (laughs) going to Skins and Stems and, and having an experience there and, and meeting a couple of people who, who run it and work there who are just very enthusiastic and very earnest about their love of wine. And it reminded me like, oh, man, this is like this is the thing that it can be, right? It can be this place where people can come. They can try new things, but they can also have old favorites. They can they can really engage with this you know beverage that we all love without some of the bullshit, frankly, that comes along with it in some parts of the country, like maybe the places you and I live. And so that was really nice, and I, and I enjoyed it, and it was very – like I said, it was very rewarding. And, and it was a lot of the, – the wine was good, the – the tin seafood and stuff was delicious, but it was it was that spirit more than anything else that I really felt myself connecting to. Yeah, man, it was really awesome. Like I thought that what was so cool about it was it's this like amazing, you know, wine bar run by the former beverage director of Husk, mm-hmm. you know, in North Charleston. And when you ask him who his clientele is, he's like, these are for the artists and musicians that live in this neighborhood. Like yeah. it's not for collectors and people who are, you know, it was just like a really cool place 
for people to come and drink really interesting wines and also not break the bank, which yeah, I thought and, was really awesome. And yeah, like you don't you don't find that as much anymore. Like it just it especially like, in the cities we live in, because also rent is really expensive. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It's it hard. was it was also like really nice and like pretty busy on a Wednesday night when we were there, which is always like I love going out on off sort of off nights and it's encouraging to see that, you know, there are people who aren't just in the industry who like doing that because that's uh that's always makes me feel good about the future of yes. of what I do for a living. Very true. So let's let's jump into it. Um, so our 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 guest this week, I'm super excited. She's sitting across from me is Victoria James, partner and beverage director at Coat here in New York City, as well as author with a new book coming out in March called Wine Girl, which some in my office have already read and say is amazing. So everyone's gonna have to buy it. But you also wrote a book on rosé. Uh, it's called again Drink Pink. Drink Pink. That's right. <laughs> um, so Victoria, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And uh, we want to talk about a bunch of stuff uh, in the industry, your perspective. I think you're you're one of the most exciting professionals in our business right now. Um, and you're really pushing the conversation that's been needing, needed to have been, we've needed to have for a while. I mean, I follow you on social. So uh, <laughs> I, you seem to be one of the people that really is pushing forward this conversation that a lot of people aren't, which is the fact that this industry has been dominated forever by basically one kind of person, which is white men, mm. um, of which, you know, I try to recognize all the time I am. Um, and Me I'd too. love for you to sort of like start the conversation just talking about like where this, I mean, you could just have been successful in your career and not done all these other amazing things that you're doing. Like where did the sort of drive that you had to do this come from? Um, and why do you think it's so important that we'd be having these conversations right now? Yeah. Uh, thanks, Adam and Zach, for having me on the show. Uh, so, you know, I think that as a young woman growing up in this industry, uh, I always felt like the underdog or the outsider. And I'm sure it's a feeling a lot of people can relate to. But when you get to a certain point in your career and then you actually are able to hold a position of power and influence uh, that industry, what do you do about it. I mean, you, I guess you could just go along and be like, this is awesome. Now I have some power and, uh, you know, that's fabulous. But uh, for me, it was so important to actually change some of the things that were really bothersome to me. And, you know, I talk a little bit about that, actually a lot about that in my next book, because there's so many, this industry could be so great. And, you know, if there are more unique voices at the table from diverse backgrounds, just the more innovation that can occur. And I really believe in that. And so that's why I feel so strongly about um, starting things like Wine Empowered and really being a spokesperson for a lot of young women. So, you know, I, I want to get into some of the, I think some of the more um, sort of meaty part of this conversation, but but I, I wanted to also ask about something that you just mentioned, which I think is really interesting. Do you get the sense that because it certainly has been the case with wine and still in a lot of cases is that it is really dominated by one particular demographic group in terms of people who um, run restaurant wine programs, who run, um, you know, importers and distributors and run, um, you know, a lot of the facets of the industry, including a lot of the ones that aren't necessarily super visible to the public, that wine has become, has been more homogenous than it maybe should be because of that sort of lack of perspective throughout the industry. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's uh, what I spoke to a bit in the article I wrote for Eager, uh, Eater New York in regards to the fact that I've always felt as if the industry is very homogenized and those in positions of power all kind of look the same. And so I went out there and, and did the legwork and actually found the statistics myself, uh, which were quite startling. You know, in New York City, Michelin-starred restaurants, 17% of the wine buyers are female. It's only 17%. 
and 0% are African-American. So, but what are the, you know, implications? What does that mean? And how does that affect the consumer? Well, it means that a lot of wine lists start to look the same and you have this sort of uh, fraternity culture that's not very welcoming to outsiders. And I, it's funny, I was talking recently to someone at the Times about this and they said they've been trying to say this for years that you have these sort of cookie cutter wine lists all around even big cities like New York. Um, and it's such a diverse city with such diverse voices. Why aren't more of those heard? So I have, I have a question for you that um, I, I want you to sort of blow this person's comment out of the water. Um, so after you wrote this piece, I happened to like, I never go to these, but I happened to go to like a morning tasting, right? And there's all these Psalms there. And this one song walked up and asked me about your piece and was like, first of all, and I was like, well, first of all, I wish you would have written it for us. But <laughs> second of all, you know, he was like, what do you think about this? And I was like, I think what she wrote was really important. He was like, well, I, I, I mean, I, I'm a beverage director. I represent, I have, I have female wines on my list. Like I have winemakers on my list that are women and people of color and yada, yada, yada. Like, you know, he sort of like felt attacked. And I said to him, my, my thing was like, well, you may think you do these things, but I'm telling you that it's, it's a problem. And like, you should feel uncomfortable by what Victoria wrote. And so like, what, how do you, how do we answer people like that? Who are like, they think they're doing a good job, but they probably aren't, or, you know, just because they, I don't know how to phrase this, you know, in, in the right way of what I'm trying to say, but in the way of like, okay, you may think that you're being a diverse person, but like there's a difference between a white man having this diverse idea and someone who is actually of that demographic representing these people. It's just completely different, but I'm curious like how, how you would answer someone like that when they make that comment. Yeah. And you know, I think to your point, 99% of the feedback I received from the article was wonderful. And, but of course there always is that 1%. And when you write an article like that, um, you're going to be attacked. There's going to be people that feel as if they're attacked. Mm -hmm. And that's just, you know, that's natural. It's, it means you're actually writing something that's important right. and not a fluff piece. And of course, you know, when the editor also puts like a clickbait title on it, like, you know, that, that happens, but that's also, that's also good. And I think, you know, I'm learning a lot too, because, uh, yes, I'm a woman in this industry, uh, but I'm also a white woman. And I have a lot of privilege and a lot of access that people don't. And so I think that it's really important for me and for men and for a lot of people, whoever you are, just to, to listen more. And, uh, you know, it's something I can get better at for sure. And I think it's a lot of, a lot of, it would behoove a lot of people in the industry to just start listening to more to other viewpoints instead of, instead of instantly feeling attacked, maybe just listen. Um, maybe just listen to the viewpoints of persons of color or women and, and see what you can do better. Because if you are standing up on a platform and saying, I'm doing everything I can, I'm being as inclusive as possible. I guarantee you, you're not. So I want to ask about something that I think goes beyond the the list, right? You know, because we're talking about diversity and inclusion. And, and part of that is certainly, you know, looking to, um, advocate for and purchase wine from people who uh, are not necessarily, you know, white men. But I also think, you know, you, you pointed out as, as you did the research for the piece you wrote that, that so few people who are in the position of beverage uh, director at these really prominent restaurants are anything other than white men. You know, how do you feel about, or, or how would you sort of um, encourage people who, who do feel like they want to try and you know, promote more diversity within the industry uh, from an employment standpoint? Like, like, how do we, you know, how do we do that? And, and what are you perhaps doing to facilitate that? 
Yeah, I think that is for sure the most fair argument. And it's a very, very valid one. The talent pool right now is also homogenized. There are just not a lot of applicants for these, you know, uh, these positions that are persons of color or women. There just aren't. And so how do you change that? Well, first, you have to start at the bottom and you have to educate persons. You have to mentor. And that's one of the reasons, along with Amy Zoe and Cynthia Chang, two other female sommeliers, we started Wine Empowered because we realized that the talent pool is also homogenized. So we're offering tuition-free education to women and minorities. And hopefully from there, the education will empower them to build their careers. Uh, But of course, everyone should support Wine Empowered, and that's great. But uh, you can also just start at your restaurant by mentoring someone that's maybe a dishwasher, a busser, a server, um, and make it your mission to build them up. I mean, I think there are so many people in those roles that are very curious and hungry, and you don't necessarily have to hire from outside of your restaurant. You can build someone up from within. So, so speaking of just sort of biases, I think one of the other things we see in the industry a lot is a bias of when you see a certain customer at a table, you assume that they like to drink a certain thing. So we, we published an article recently about this where basically there's, there's pretty much, you know, there's a, a bias in the industry of selling sweet wine, especially to African-American women, right? How do you, as a beverage director, how do you train your staff? your songs, et cetera, to sort of try to, to come to the table and not have that bias. Like, oh, this person must like this or that. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a very tricky point, right? Because as a sommelier, you have to figure out what someone's going to drink in under 10 seconds, <laughs> maybe 30. And we have at Coat over 1,200 wines on our list. Oh, wow. <laughs> so how do you lower it down in such a short period of time? I mean, obviously, you do have to maybe pick up a few clues beforehand and you know, so it's it's tricky, but, you know, I think we're so lucky at Coat is that, you know, we have an amazing group of sommeliers and a lot of them are younger than me and they come from maybe Gen Z where they have uh, friends who are from different backgrounds and themselves are women or minorities and as a result understand different viewpoints. And so I think that the best thing you can do is just, is just again, listen mm-hmm. and educate yourself, um, have more friends and people you interact with that are diverse uh, because those stereotypes, I think, can be very, very hurtful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's a really good point and, and something that I certainly work with when I'm trying to train my staff as well is to not, you know, to as best you can, you know, try to leave any preconceptions, you know, on the way by the wayside when you when you approach a table because you just you, you don't know what someone wants, you know, until you talk to them. I wanted to ask a little bit about what you see as the the dynamic in in New York City in particular, because obviously that's where where you, you're based and that's where your restaurant is. You know, do you you, you talked about sort of the lack of or, well, lack is wrongly put it, but let's say the the traditional applicant pool for sommelier positions, beverage director positions, um, in in a lot of cities is pretty homogenous, and but New York City is an incredibly diverse city. Are, do you still feel like that? that homogeneity exists or, or is that, is some of it just that there are a lot of these are kind of legacy positions and someone gets into a beverage director position and they stay there for a decade or two because, you know, there's nowhere really else to go that's up in, in restaurants typically. Um, you know, so, so is it, is it that, is it that necessarily the applicant pool is still pretty homogenous or is it that there are people in these positions who just are not going to give them up until they retire? 
Uh, I would say it's it's not the latter. I mean, it was interesting when I was doing this research and finding the persons who are in these positions of power in Michelin-starred restaurants in New York City, as well as Wine Spectator award-winning restaurants. There's an incredible amount of turnover. In fact, since I, you know, I originally uh, started doing research in the piece earlier this year, actually, and I had to keep updating it every month because so many of these wine directors would leave. I think since I've written the piece, I know of two restaurants that already the wine directors have left and there's been some turnover. And luckily, actually, there's uh, women that have now uh, taken those positions. So it's constantly changing. Uh, I It's very rare that someone holds these positions for a long period of time because there's so much pressure there. and It's a hard job. Uh, so I think that we just have to work on making the talent pool uh, not as homogenized. So speaking about the homogenized talent pool, that sort of leads to one of the other things we wanted to talk about on today's podcast, which is that I think I've been in the industry now really for six years since starting wine pair, right? I was a wine drinker as like a, you know, we had, Josh and I had a wine club that Keith, who you knew from his Ballers Lounge days ran. And like really the wine club was started by my wife, Naomi. And I didn't really know the industry, right? So there's, there's very few actually people that work in the industry. And Zach knows this a a bunch. Like I'm not someone who, who grew up working in restaurants, but when I first came to the industry, I noticed something, which is that there's a lot of drinking, right? A lot of pressure to drink. And that in that same industry, there's like this boys club, right? In this industry. And that I've noticed when I've gone to events leads to a lot of behavior that makes me feel very uncomfortable. Yeah. (laughs) And like how you're helping sort of call that out, but like, what is how, like, how is the industry dealing with this? Cause I feel like the industry until really recently with this piece in the New York times, it was amazing written by Jody Cantor. Like we haven't had, you know, a, a moment where we're a reckoning. And like we as Vine Pair have talked a lot as an editorial staff that we would like to do more to call this out and mm-hmm. to do more of this kind of reporting that, that was done. But like, what can we all be doing to try to stop sort of the harassment that's happening in the industry and the bad behavior that comes with alcohol and then which allows alcohol to be used as an excuse when it shouldn't be? That's a great point. And sorry to have to correct you, Adam, but it was uh, Julia Moskin that wrote oh, it. Jody Cantor did the Weinstein piece. <laughs> all good. Uh, but no, no, it's a, it's a great point you bring up. And I'm so glad you brought it up because uh, alcohol especially is used as an excuse for bad behavior often. And there was a piece that uh, Rachel Monroe just wrote for The New Yorker in which she talks about uh, the natural wine world uh, and how this is happening more because it's interesting. Uh, the piece that Julia wrote in The New York Times, these are people who are in the natural wine world. Uh, which is very interesting. Uh, the the persons, the, the victims and the abusers, uh, I think growing up in the fine dining world in the Michelin starred environment, I think I know it's way worse uh, because these are old boys clubs. You know, right. this is the definition of pale male and stale. And I talk about this a lot in my next book where, you know, it's more like being inducted into a fraternity than it is being, you know, hired for a job. And if you are a young woman in this business well well what's a woman's role in a fraternity interesting it's i mean i'm sorry Jack, i know you usually i just want to pipe on this so you're saying in the natural wine world is that because there's this idea that that's it's supposed to be more open just in, in the in the idea of natural wine right that it's this that there should be better behavior or do you think that i mean it's and that's why shocking. Yeah, or is no, just like it's, I mean it's shocking to me. It's there should be better behavior industry wide. Right? I think it's shocking to me because the natural wine world seems much more progressive, and it seems uh, filled with younger people who are not part of these old boys clubs. And right. uh, you know, so it's shocking to me that it still exists in a more progressive part of the wine world. Interesting. 
Well, I, I find that really interesting, not surprising at all, sadly. And and I was going to say, you know, one of the one of the things that Adam and I have talked about a little bit on this podcast before, and and that I think is really important, and it comes back a little bit to the conversation that was that was had earlier about, you know, what I think, what I at least think can be done um, by people who are, you know, can maybe be allies, if not, you know, necessarily, uh, even if we are, say, white men. And one of them is this conversation that happens. Unfortunately, really frequently in some of these settings, whether it's on trade uh, at trade tastings, trips, et cetera, which is a lot of sort of, frankly, uh, gross objectification of women, especially in the industry, especially like the minute they leave the room. And I know that that's maybe something that also happens, you know, in earshot for you, uh, Victoria, and certainly for lots of other women in the industry. But it's certainly something that happens. Um, sort of as soon as certain people in this industry think that the coast is clear, such as it is. And, you know, I was, I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective, and, and I don't think I know that the there's an answer that I think is particularly right, but, but you know, how do you feel like um, people like me, frankly, should be confronting that? Yeah, that's a great question, Zach. And I think, you know, it starts, you know, with having just, it's just speaking up, you know, I think that for so long women were objectified in this industry, uh, of course, in advertisements. And then when we started to, you know, actually become sommeliers and, and work in the industry, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's definitely very challenging. And, and there's a lot to be said about that. But, uh, you know, I think one of the biggest things that can change and is really needed is to have more uh, people like you, Zach and Adam and, uh, you know, really strong men standing behind women. And, you know, I'm so thankful to have my husband, Lyle, who's my biggest fan and supporter. And, you know, I love, love it that, you know, every article I write will help me edit it and make it so I'm not attacking just, you know, white males because he is a white male. And I, and I, you know, it's, it's a good perspective to have, but he's, you know, one thing I keep telling him that he can do because he also holds a position of power in the industry uh, working for an importer is just to be more inclusive and to include more women and minorities at luncheons or tastings. Uh, you know, people often forget they think that money is privilege. It's not. It's access. And if you don't give these invitations to people, if you don't include them into your group, um, you're excluding them. And so I think that's what we can do more of. We can be more inclusive and go out of our way to make more friends and connections in the industry, uh, people that don't look like us. Makes a lot of sense. In terms of the, the other sort of issue with a lot of this, which gets blamed on alcohol, Right. How how do you think the we should all be better with that? Right. So, I, I mean, I, we talk to our staff a lot right, about mm-hmm. how, you know, you go to these lunches like we expect you to spit. Yeah. Right. Like we expect you to not get drunk. Like we we have policies in place as a publication. I think it's different than the beverage industry, like the actual industry we're covering where it's like if you're drunk at one of our events, it's cause for immediate dismissal. But but I feel like maybe it doesn't happen as much. I mean, this is interesting. That goes back to our conversation with Kelly. Uh, in Charleston, where she was saying she saw the industry in Charleston change, where like when it became more of a fine dining city, mm. there's a lot of less people drinking on the job. Mm. But do you see that that's still something that's happening a lot in New York? Like, are there people still drinking on the job? And like, how do we how do we sort of explain that's not okay and that those people shouldn't work there anymore? Like, yeah, I you know, growing up in this industry, I saw it a ton, and I purposely tried to distance myself from it because unfortunately, it also made me a victim in many situations. And it's not fair that it did, but unfortunately, uh, it did. So it's something that really frightened me. And I purposely don't go to these late night parties, or I purposely don't go on a lot of uh, wine trips. 
and things where I'm just very vulnerable. Uh, it's, it's, but it's, it's not cool that I have to feel that way. Like it's, yeah. it, I, sh- I shouldn't. Um, and so I think the best thing is that we have to keep reminding people that this is a profession that you have to be professional. Uh, you know, it's access alone in this industry can drive someone to alcoholism. It's everywhere and it's free and it's literally flowing. So you have to, um, you just have to treat it with respect and you have to treat those around you with respect. And if you don't, you don't belong here. I completely agree. Yeah. And I think, you know, you make a, a really good point, Victoria, which is, I think that there's something about, you know, it kind of ties all back into this idea of this sort of old boys club, which is like, and, and you know, not, as someone who also has been made uncomfortable by sort of the culture of, of drinking and excess and, and not as a victim at all, but as someone who just isn't interested in that in general. But it is true that like, you know, that's where the, you know, that's the, that's how you get to be friends with someone who might then make a decision about, you know, your promotion or you getting hired somewhere else or you getting a certain kind of reputation. Um, and, and it is this really unseemly gross kind of, yeah, fraternity is probably the best way to to describe it. I never was a part of one, so I can only speculate. I've seen some <laughs> movies, but uh, but I think there's something about that idea that like it is this really toxic place for, frankly, everyone. But it's especially, I think, pretty toxic if you are not in that hum, you know homogenous group where you're just one way or another are either going to can be victimized or or sort of isolated or both. And it's just. It, it, it's really disappointing to see an industry that I think all of us love, you know, obviously we do this for a reason that's so still so kind of stuck in this very uh, antiquated and kind of frankly gross model that, that is shifting maybe in some places slightly uh, thanks to people like you, but, but is not anywhere near where it needs to be. Yeah. That wasn't a question. Sorry. Just a statement. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, you know, it's it's frustrating that it's a double-edged sword because also when Julia was working on her Times piece, you know, I was really trying to help her get a lot of uh, women to come forward. And, you know, even through social media, so many women reached out to me and shared their stories, which are just all so horrible. And so many of them, there was a common thread. They kept saying, well, I can't come forward because this person's my boss, or I'm worried I won't be hired somewhere else. Or, you know, with the stigma attached, everyone's uh, not going to want to offer me a promotion or a job. And so it's tough because as you mentioned at these events and parties, you want to kind of schmooze and network and you think that's part of your job because it is to a certain extent. But um, unfortunately, if you're a woman, you know, people often can objectify you. So, you know, what I'm trying to do is, is bring more of these conversations to light and have them. And even if it makes people uncomfortable or if they feel as if they're being attacked, I don't care. I think it's really important that we discuss these things and just trying to support more women. Uh, you know, if, if you're listening out there and you're a woman in this industry and you, something's happened to you and you feel like a victim, uh, you know, reach out to me. I can help you get a job somewhere else where you're safer. Um, come work for us at Coot. Uh, you know, I think that you, in order to counter the old boys club, you need to start not, you know, an old girls club. <laughs> you need to start a club that's just inclusive mm-hmm. for everyone. So in terms of, um, you know, us being advocates, one of the things I've thought a lot about is obviously like, I'm, I'm really sick of people telling me that like alcohol was the excuse. Mm-hmm. And I'm really sick of hearing other people allow that to be someone's excuse. So I've thought a lot about like, in terms of my being an advocate and helping people 
in in both this industry as well as the tech industry and media, like I've stopped asking, I, I've stopped basically offering drinks and we get coffee, right? Like there's no excuse to then stay later and have more, like let's have a real meeting and get to know each other. And like, yeah. how can we sort of tell the rest of the industry too? Like, look, just because we work in this industry, like you can go take, take the person to coffee, right? Like <laughs> have them get an iced tea or yeah. something, get to know them in a sober setting, mm-hmm. talk to them and see how you can help them in their career. And how can we be better be better advocates? I know we talk. There's a lot of people who talk a lot about like Wow talks a lot about this. Like, um, it's Wonder Women of Wine. Um, you know, men be you know having a man sort of in the profession also helping you in your career. Right. Like, what can we like? What could what can I do better? What can Zach do better to help people in their career who feel like they're being attacked, et cetera? Help them find new jobs um, because that's something that I know is important to me. I know is important to Zach and probably important to a lot of the listeners. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I couldn't do what I do today at all unless I had Simon Kim from Coat supporting me. I mean, not only is he the owner and my boss, but he is the number one supporter of everything I do. You know, he also reads all of my articles and uh, he is incredibly supportive of, you know, this new color-coded harassment program that uh, Amy Zoe, our general manager, and uh, started as well at Coat. And so it's important to have strong men supporting women. And so there's great things you can do. For example, having those sober meetings with coffee or tea. One of the best uh, work meetings I went on recently is we went to a museum together. Uh, You know, there are places you can go that don't involve drinking. And even if it does involve drinking, um, you know, maybe make it not a one-on-one meeting. So there's never that situation in which a woman feels scared or as if, you know, she has to maybe do something to get ahead, which is a horrible thing to have to even think. Uh, You know, I think just put yourself in someone else's shoes yeah. and uh, listen to women, support women, especially women of color. That's amazing. I want to ask, a, 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 a leave things, or at least on my end, with something a little less weighty, even though this has been, I think, a really important conversation and one I'm really glad we had. But, you know, we are talking to, I think, an, a very, very uh, accomplished and uh, excellent beverage professional. And so, Victoria, I just wanted to know, what, what have you been drinking lately that you particularly have been oh, excited about? That was about? my question. <laughs> Yes, beat you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, of course, at Coat, we uh, do a lot of big bottles. And every Monday we have like our Magnum Monday selection where we open a special bottle and pour it at cost. And so some weeks we have absolute classics. Like this week we chose a double Magnum of Oberfo Chinon, um, which was delicious. Uh, but I love also supporting these, you know, smaller growers and producers and especially... Uh, people that might not necessarily have the spotlight. Uh, so at Coat right now, we're drinking a lot of wines from Andre Mack, who just also wrote I love awesome. Andre. He's the best. Did you read his book, 99 Bottles? Yeah. He, so so Keith and I used to run this thing called Vivo and Vino, which was a indie rock concert series where we pair a big indie rock band with a winemaker. And he was the first one that we did with him in Freelance Wales. Andre is the best. <laughs> He's amazing. And also, like, you know, uh, there's this amazing uh, female winemaker in California called Martha Salvin. And she uh, makes this post-flirtation blend that we serve slightly chilled at Coat. And it's delicious with steak. It's so good. Awesome. Well, Victoria, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a really amazing conversation. The book comes out March... 2020. 2020. You can pre-order now. Awesome. <laughs> All right. So yeah. So everyone should everyone should read it. Like I said, the people in the opposite of Reddit said it's amazing. And pre-orders, for those that don't know, actually really help book sales a lot. Um, and helps get it... Uh, higher on the charts. So go on Amazon probably is the best, right? And pre-order Wine Girl. It's really great. Um, And yeah, and then when you come to New York, 
definitely eat it cut. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a review, rate us, uh, tell tell all the people you know, even people you don't know about uh, the Vine Pair podcast. It really uh, helps the show grow. Um, and Zach, I will see you right back here next week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair podcast. If you like what you've heard, please rate us or review us wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps people discover the show. Now for the credits. The Vinepair Podcast is produced by myself and Zach Jabal and is engineered by Nick Patry. We're recorded out of Cloud Studios in Seattle, Washington, and also in our New York City headquarters. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vinepair staff who help us conceive of the show every single week. Thanks again for listening.